You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 201 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. Winter is approaching, at least in my neck of the woods. There are parts of the world where it gets sunnier and sunnier this time of year, but where I live it gets colder and darker. This week's episode would not have happened without one of the listeners. That's right, you as a listener can affect the reality of this podcast. Recently, I received an email from listener Stephen that read... Interview John David Ebert. This dude is an expert in media theory, McLuhan in specific, comparative mythology and philosophy. He also has recently opened to the possibility of the profound. It's a match made in heaven, and I am sure John would be interested if you reached out. Also, thank you for your podcast. You're amazing. Well, thanks. And uh, how can you decline such a suggestion? And of course, I investigated this John character and discovered that indeed it was someone I would be most interested in speaking with. John is the author of 26 books, including Art After Metaphysics, The New Media Invasion, The Age of Catastrophe, and Dead Celebrities, Living Icons. For three decades, John has studied the morphogenetic dynamics of cultures, societies, and civilizations. Without delay, here's John David Ebert. So thanks for being on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Could you explain to the listeners a bit about who you are and what you do? Sure, absolutely. I'm a cultural critic uh, with a background uh, in religious studies. I started out uh, studying with the Joseph Campbell Foundation back in the 90s. uh, And so I started out in mythology. But then I uh, branched out into philosophy, uh, critical theory in particular, uh, and then media studies as well. So uh, <clears throat> the McLuhan uh, media studies world. So I sort of based my whole career on a synthesis of those three areas and using them uh, as tools to apply them to discussing uh, any given aspect of culture, whether it's pop culture, uh, pop or, you know, top, whatever. And on the other end, I've written books about superheroes and graphic novels and uh, popular movies. So I covered the whole spectrum using all of this uh, kind of thing. You mentioned Joseph Campbell. Uh, his book, A Hero with a Thousand Faces, is. will there ever be any book, or has there been any, that will uh, push that down from the... Is, it has such a high status, like push it down from the top or, or, and replace it? No, you, know, in, you mean in the field of myth studies? Um, no, I don't think so. I think it's, it's deservedly in the top five, at least along with his uh, four-volume history of religious ideas called The Masks of God. I think those two are at the top, definitely. There are some others that belong there, too, like Mircea Eliade's History of Religious Ideas and Symbols of Transformation by Carl Jung. Um, those are all in the top. Uh, the Birth of Tragedy by Nietzsche and uh, the book on Psyche uh, by Ervin Rhoda, Nietzsche's friend. Um, those are amongst the top. Yeah, they're, they're all-timers. 
McLuhan is not as well known these days. Um, he was very famous uh, a few decades ago. But uh, unless you're maybe a Terence McKenna fan, because he raves about McLuhan a lot. But uh, could you talk a bit about McLuhan for people who might not know? Well, sure. <clears throat> yeah, McLuhan um, came out of Toronto and um, invented media studies almost single-handedly. Uh, the only exception to that being that Harold Innes, uh, who was also there at Toronto with him, University of Toronto, um, was there just a couple of years before he was. I, I think McLuhan's first book, The Mechanical Bride, <clears throat> came out in the, right around the same time as The Hero with a Thousand Faces. I think it was 1949 or 50. Um, and The Mechanical Bride is good, but it doesn't, it, it's, and it is media studies, but it's McLuhan not yet fully aware of the idea that the medium is the message. That was introduced to him by Harold Innes, um, who within that year, 50, 51, 52, wrote um, The Bias of Communication and Empire in Communications, which discussed the history of the uh, uses of media through history and how uh, when you're using a particular medium, it gives you a bias. The, the medium always slants the thought that goes through it and gives it a bias. Just like, for example, Neil Postman said uh, in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, that you can't have serious political debate on television because anything that goes through television is automatically transformed into entertainment. That's the bias of television. That's the message of that medium. And so McLuhan came up with this uh, after studying uh, Harold Innes and then uh, set himself to work over the next few years, writing his two masterpieces, The Gutenberg Galaxy, which came out, I think, in 1962, and Understanding Media, 1964. And those are the books that made him famous almost overnight. All through the 60s, he was on every television talk show that you could think of from, uh, you know, just every single one of them uh, that was hot all the way down to about 1972 uh, when his fame then fell off. Uh, he died in 1980. Um, he'd had a serious brain uh, tumor removed uh, in the late 60s that somewhat damaged his, his career and his speaking abilities. But after that, he, after he died in 1980, I don't think anybody knew who he was until Wired Magazine came along in the 1990s, and they devoted a special issue to Marshall McLuhan as the prophet of the uh, digital world. And they clearly realized that this was the case, and they sort of uh, repopularized him, and he's had a steady following ever since uh, Wired Magazine uh, brought him back. And people are realizing that he's predicted a lot of what has come about since, uh, since then, since his time. So uh, he is he is popular uh, and he is well respected. Um, he's by no means a, a superstar like he was back in the 60s. But people do know who he is. And they, you know, understanding media, that book is just as important in that field as the hero with a thousand faces is in the field of myth studies. They're absolutely essential. And now with uh, user user media, you could call it, where the user is actually making the content, I guess that's uh, a great symbol of what McLuhan was talking about because each person who has a YouTube channel or a podcast, their their medium is, becomes the message, becomes very individualized. Yes. Well, I mean, the idea is that um, McLuhan has this idea that every new medium that comes along uh, is a form that has a content and the content of the form is a previous medium. So you could say that um, the content of the printing, uh, the printing press when it came about in the 15th century were the uh, illuminated manuscripts, uh, the Arthurian romances and the biblical texts and so forth that were written out, copied out by hand. Those are the content of the new medium of the printing press. And then by the time, let's say you get to 
um, you get to film the content of film is the novel. So the novel gets dumped into film. Uh, you move to television. The content of television is film uh, for a while there. And now with the Internet, the content of the Internet is all previous electronic media. It uh, doesn't matter what it was, uh, analog or digital. If it was electronic, it's now inside the Internet. And so when you are using the Internet, you are putting on a mask, as McLuhan would say, you're being you're beaming your avatar at the speed of light around the planet and you are putting on a, a, a mask and you're putting on a public along with that mask. McLuhan always had this idea that uh, the intellectual wears the public as a kind of mask. Um, and that's sort of what we're doing now, what each individual is indeed doing beaming his or her avatar at the speed of light around the planet now, um, we're all sort of existing in the, the new world interior of uh, the internet. What I think is interesting is if you look at, for instance, the the vinyl record, uh, then the CD came and the vinyl died away. And then uh, nowadays uh, bands release like these you know, well-produced, you know, works of art as vinyl. Like they make all this extra cover art and everything. And the same with uh, books. You know, towards the, you know, before ebooks came out and PDFs and all that, the book has had become kind of like lazy. They, you know, pocket books like just printed like machines, just churning them out. Uh, they were not made as beautiful as they used to be. And now uh, there has you know, many publishers has popped up that are making these like really nice looking books. It's like coming back. I don't know if there's a term for this, but uh, it seems like the old uh, mediums or medias are returning. It's like an old, like a old casket of whiskey or something. <laughs> yes, uh, McLuhan has an idea for that too. That's called um, uh, the retrieval. Uh, uh, it's the retrieval effect whereby. Uh, when new media come along, they change the environment completely. And so the environment that gets scrapped, that's uh, sloughed off, like a snake sheds its skin, let's say, the sloughed off environment returns in the new environment as a work of art. Whereas before that, it had been environmental and therefore unconscious. We're never aware of the environment that we're in. We're like fish swimming in water that, that take the water for granted. We're not even aware of it. Every new medium creates an environment that we are unconscious of that artists make us conscious of. It's the job of the artist to make us consciously aware of the environment that we're in. But the phenomenon that you're talking about, about vinyl and uh, retrieving the previous environment has to do with the miniaturization of the old environment now as a work of art. It comes back in the new uh, sensorium as a work of art. It would be interesting to know in many years in the future when virtual reality returns as a work of art you know <laughs> <laughs> right yeah i know who, who knows so um, from what i understand you're interested in what makes a society and a culture stick together yes very much so yes that's my primary theme i think is i'm fascinated with uh, cultural uh, senescence cultural decay but also what brings civilization in order to understand cultural decay you have to also understand what what makes a culture cohere like you said stick together. And I've spent my entire career studying civilizations and studying uh, how and what forces hold them together and what happens when they disintegrate and fall apart. And um, generally, the forces that bring a civilization into being are always religious. They're almost always, I think, in every single case, religious. The religions act as these vessels that uh, create new world horizons. 
with sign regimes full of semiotics and signifiers that are glowing with the transcendent numinosity of the other world, that becomes bound to a particular local cultural horizon that puts a group on a map with a certain number of events. They might be what Heiner Milman calls maximal stress events, like, for instance, the Greeks fighting the, the Persians or Charles Martel fighting the Muslims uh, coming up through Spain. Those are maximal stress events that are become boundary acts uh, whereby one civilization defines itself and its identity from as contradistinction in contradistinction to another. And those events are usually bound up with religious forms and the religious forms form the immune system that gives the society the strength to, to uh, repel being gobbled up by other societies. And in that case, then you have a civilization that's healthy, that's flourishing, and that sticks together for a very long time. And usually once you get one of these high civilizations that comes into being, they, they last for about a thousand years before they start coming apart at the seams. And invariably what causes that is uh, the intellect gains the upper hand over religion. Philosophy becomes more important for a while, metaphysical philosophy for a while, but then it shades off into purely pragmatic and economic philosophy, the kind of you know Jeremy Bentham type stuff uh, that you get coming in at the end of the 19th century, pragmatics, uh, how to survive under huge urban agglomerations. Life becomes weary and tired and uprooted from the land and pretty soon it just wants to go back into a death sleep. And after a while, it starts breaking off and balkanizing. You start getting internal proletariats with their own social formations that start springing up almost like cancerous tumors within the mother body of the larger dying civilization. And uh, it's a very big process. And this has been my main theme is studying uh, how various different kinds of social formations come into being. If we take that metaphor of the vinyl record, isn't that a bit like, that's how I kind of look at when I think about the Roman Empire and the, like the American Empire, they're different, but there's also a lot of similarities and it's almost like one inspires the, the next. Yeah, and they're, they're structurally right about, you know, equivalent right now. I mean, the, the Roman Empire is about, I, th I think America is about, and it's, uh, let's say, America is an extension of Europe, so it belongs in the same civilization, the same way the Romans are an extension of the Greeks. Uh, they're the same civilization, and Oswald Spengler in The Decline of the West just called them, that's the classical civilization, and our Euro-American civilization is what he called the Faustian civilization, the Northwestern civilization. And uh, in both cases, I think, with the Romans and the Americans, they're both very, uh, very similar in terms of their personality typology, they're both pragmatic, uh, they're both materialistically oriented, they're both anti-metaphysical. Um, the Romans regarded uh, the Greeks as essentially effete, um, uh, aesthetes, uh, basically not uh, up to the task of living in the world, uh, militarily speaking, building huge aqueducts and gigantic uh, technical and engineering achievements. And the Americans have done, once again, on the turn of the spiral, 2000 years later, the Americans are doing the same thing, they've got the same mentality, vis-a-vis uh, -vis Europe, the old world. Um, and um, civilizations do have, when they enter into these late phases, very similar uh, personality characteristics. Civilizations are a little bit like people in a certain sense. They too have personalities and typical personalities. Um, the Ottoman Empire, for instance, uh, is coming in at the end of Islamic civilization, also was very anti-metaphysical. It wasn't much interested in Arabic metaphysics. The Arabics were the master metaphysicians. The Persians were the great poets. And that phase was over by the time the Ottomans came along to build that empire, uh, which also had a, a militaristic and pragmatic character. Most of the achievements uh, that the Ottomans produced were in the areas of science, engineering, and medicine. 
Um, so it just seems to fall out this way morphologically. Sometimes I look at the whole human race, uh, and as you said, if you can look at a civilization as as a person or as people, uh, with, uh, then the human race to me, if it was a single individual, it would be like, I imagine it's like a 16-year-old, like not fully uh, mature yet. Mm -hmm, maybe. I mean, you've got uh, Gotthold the Lessing, the German... Uh, writer um, and philosopher at the end of the 18th century, he was a contemporary of Goethe, wrote a little essay on the history of the human race, uh, talking about it in terms of three distinct epochs. And he said that there's the childhood of the human race, which is primitive man before the advent of high civilization. And then there's the maturity of the human race, which uh, occurs with the high civilizations coming into being, each one provincial uh, and place bound to a specific world horizon, each one geographically separated from the other but that now he thought we might be entering into a new planetary global civilization for the first time that might represent the old age of humanity and could last for a very, very long time. Um, so I don't know. It depends on, you can draw these maps in different ways. It just depends on which theoretician you want to think about to model your terrain. One part of my map I, didn't, I should have mentioned was that I was also thinking like, because when you're like 20, you kind of move away from home. So I was imagining that as when we populate the universe. Right. Well, it's possible. But um, one thing I find, and that's something I'm very interested in, is indigenous culture. And when you look at indigenous communities around the world, even though some of them are still intact, like somewhere deep in the Amazon and certain areas around the world. Many of them have been, uh, uh, you know, pushed down or, you know, put in reserves or have suffered a lot. But still, you know, their tradition and cultures, they're, they, they're not dying. They still, uh, they're very resilient. And uh, we don't, I mean, it's very hard to say how old some of these indigenous communities are. You can't really date them because they, they're oral traditions. But why, why, why do you think, and, and they're not really civilizations either, but they seem to be more long-lasting than any other uh, civilization or culture? That does indeed seem to be the case, I think. Uh, they're, they're not civilizations, but they're cultures. Um, so a culture is something different. Uh, it's not necessarily the same thing as a civilization. Um, now, here again, it depends on your vocabulary. Uh, uh, Spangler uses those two terms in a very different sense from, from Arnold Toynbee in A Study of History. Uh, for Toynbee, the, the high civilizations that we think of as civilization are what he calls civilizations. And um, anything before that, uh, he regards as a culture. Although Spangler, though, does a different thing and says that the distinction we were making earlier between uh, the metaphysical phase of a civilization and the late pragmatic empire phase, he called the early phase the culture period proper, uh, the period that's associated with art and culture and metaphysics. And the late uh, phase is the, the Roman Empire, the Americans, the Ottomans, uh, civilization. In the meaning by that term, a kind of uh, almost derogatory sense that this is a society that's in decline, it's, it's merely a civilization. So Toynbee and Spangler use those two terms in, in two very different ways. But I think with indigenous societies, yes, they're cultures and they have, they're not yet in a mode that's bound up with a kind of temporal metabolism that has an urgent necessity about it that goes through a series of stages that might almost even be predetermined. Spangler insisted that they were predetermined. You go to 
a pre-cultural tribal phase, and then you get a cultural phase with the advent of a high artistic style, massive architecture, um, and then a, a phase, uh, a middle phase, a, a culture phase proper based on uh, metaphysical philosophy, and then a civilization phase based on pragmatics and materialism and decadence. Whereas these indigenous cultures, they can they can last forever. And Spangler kind of, whereas he drew a model, he drew the high civilizations as analogous to plants, gigantic plants with predetermined life cycles. In his later years, uh, the last book that he was working on, he, he turned to the early Neolithic indigenous societies and he analogized them to amoebas. They're, they have these large areas, uh, very large amoeba-like areas that are very flexible um, within which uh, signifiers uh, are passed back and forth through trade routes, through uh, people migrating across distances, and they're passing signifiers back and forth in particular culture zones. So they do have cultural zones. What uh, his, uh, Leo Frobenius was a German anthropologist who came up with this idea of Kulturkreislehre, the culture circle teaching, where he has this idea that these, these, these huge um, indigenous culture circles where there's a lot in common between the motifs, the myth motifs and the symbols in this region. For example, he drew one of the major uh, cultural circles extending from West Africa all the way across the Pacific into the New World. Uh, and that includes Asia as well um, as having all of these things in common and within that region. Like you, that's only within that region that you find totem poles, for instance. You find them amongst the Chinese. You find them amongst the equatorial Africans. And you find them on the Northwest Pacific coast. And that can't be an accident because there's all kinds of motifs that, that spread throughout that region. So that's a culture circle, but it doesn't have a temporal metabolism. It's not, it can go forever, basically, like you were saying. It, it's indigenous peoples have extremely flexible uh, societies. Um, so, yeah, that's a good point. What I think is interesting is that, I mean, there's been a lot of change in the last 2,000 years, but also if you travel back in time, if you go to, uh, if we don't know, but if it was real or not, maybe, but if you go to the birth of Jesus, you know, year zero, and you walk around Jerusalem, you know, uh, it might look different at first, but it's not that different if you live, if you stay there for a few months and you know the language. I mean, they have some sort of message system like postal service. They have some sort of police system. They have some doctor. They have streets. They have a sh I mean, it's not that different uh, from today. It's, it's more technological advancements, but the, the life in a society, you know, you probably have a job, you, you know, like that. Yeah, that's, I mean, you're always going to get that, you know, civilization has specialization and vocations that are almost timeless. That's correct. But nevertheless, they, they do change and they do have structures and forms that are structuring each one of these epochs that make them very different from preceding epochs and certain civilizations having epochs in common with certain characteristics, just as, you know, an old person, all old people have certain uh, biological characteristics in common that demarcate them as old, older people. Uh, they might have gray hair, they, they have more wrinkles, they might have liver spots. You know, they all have things in common that come from the morphology of where they're at in their life cycle. And Spangler's point was that civilizations are sort of like this, too. They, they, they have aging characteristics. Civilizations have temporal metabolisms of youth, growth, maturity and old age. Every single one of them does. The high civilizations. Uh, I don't think you would say the same thing about the indigenous cultures. They... Um, they're not yet at that, that temporal metabolism where it's sort of 
geared and locked in almost like a living organism suddenly crystallizes and coheres with the birth of a new religion that invariably brings a new death cult, a new mode of burial, a new mode of understanding of sexuality, a new mode of the human being's position in the universe. Um, all that comes out uh, usually with the, coherent, the coherence of a religion uh, just within a few centuries. And then suddenly you're there and you're in civilization. Now you're in a mode that has an almost predetermined life cycle to it. You're going to go through specific distinct phases. It's going to play out differently because each civilization is good at different things like people are. Um, so each one is good at something that the other civilization isn't. But it m must have some effect in the, in our DNA and somehow that we, from the moment we became uh, self-aware or conscious, we didn't we lived the same way for maybe a hundred thousand years and then the last five to ten thousand years there's been a lot of things going on maybe it's a bit maybe it's like when you get married too soon you know like that kind of thing well i don't know it just depends on the culture i mean the neanderthal culture i think has was the longest lived i mean it went on forever hundreds of thousands of years from let's say 600,000 bc with the pre-neanderthals down to uh, you know, the time where the Cromanians get into Europe and start fighting with them and pretty much wipe them out. Their culture forms, I remember archaeologists talking about looking at Neanderthal cave sites that had been there for tens of thousands of years with the, with little change at all to the site. The technologies didn't change. Now, almost nothing changed at these sites. The Neanderthals were incredibly conservative. But with Cromanian man, uh, modern Homo sapiens is now the, the correct term, I suppose, uh, coming into Europe about 40,000 years ago, Suddenly everything starts changing by 30,000 with the invention of art, high art, uh, you know, the painted art of the caves in Chauvet, Chauvet being the oldest and the sculptural traditions. Suddenly now there's a there's a metabolism and the Neanderthals are extinct by 27,000 years ago. They're gone. And this culture lasts from 30,000, the, the second culture now, the Cromanian culture lasts from 30,000 years ago down to the melting of the glaciers about 14,000 years ago. So that was a very long, stable, conservative culture. Uh, with some changes in the cultural forms, but nothing really dramatic. And it seems that uh, the melting of the glaciers uh, wiped it out. It, it didn't, it, it was adapted to the ice age and it just didn't survive that transformation of the environment. And that's why it's so interesting when you think about United States that's uh, so dominant in the world that it's it hasn't even started yet when in a thousand years when you look back comparing it to other kind of like large superpowers or empires, a couple of hundred years is like nothing. Uh, it might be uh, 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 last for thousands of years. We don't know, but uh, if we look at it from now, it's so new. Probably, probably not likely because, in the case of the American Empire, I think there's a difference. Um, its life cycle is doomed by the melting of the ice caps. Um, in five centuries, all the cities are going to be the coastal cities are going to be underwater. And I don't see an empire holding together under the, the very harsh conditions that are going to happen with the uh, sea level rise that's going to take place. I, I think it's it's five centuries is the very longest, and that's probably even just really optimistic. Uh, maybe it's just a couple hundred years. So it's a it's in a very different situation. It's kind of like where the Cro-Magnons were just when their uh, ice their glaciers started melting, and that melt happened very fast. James Hansen of NASA was talking about the sea level rising. At that time, something like a meter uh, every decade or every two decades, something like it was very fast. It was like uh, 10 meters per century. Um, so it was fast and it was catastrophic. And he predicts that it may be about the same for us now, too. So um, 
we're in a similar situation with the Cremanians facing the, the, the ending of a, an epoch here. It could be quite funny in a way if like uh, a few thousand years from now there's indigenous communities and in their oral tradition there's stories about this modern to modern 5,000 year long man who came and went. <laughs> right, yep. Um, you, I noticed you've written a bit about Akhenaten. Yes. Uh -huh. And he's uh, always been my favorite uh, Egyptian historical figure. Yeah, maybe uh, mine too, yeah. yeah. And even I've tried to convince my wife that if we have a, we didn't get one, but if we got a son, I wanted to call him Akhenaten because I thought <laughs> it, it would be so, uh, it would be so I cool. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's it, cool. It would be so cool when you like when you shout from the window for him to come in to eat food, like <laughs> Agnaten, you know, like. <laughs> yeah, that'd be something, wouldn't it? That'd raise eyebrows all over the block. But could you uh, maybe listeners don't know who he is and how important, or he's also a mystery. Yes, that's, that's true. Agnaten uh, uh, was uh, a pharaoh who lived in about 1350 BC. Uh, in the middle of what had been crystallized as the Egyptian empire, what's called the New Kingdom, which was founded as the result uh, of the expulsion of the Hyksos. The Hyksos had come in about 1700 BC and conquered Egypt, uh, especially in the north, the Delta, and set up a capital there at Avaris, uh, from whence they ruled Egypt, they, they conquered. And, and the Hyksos were mostly Semites. Some of their names, like the, the occurrence of the name Jacob appears as one of their rulers, Jacob El. Um, so they already have Semitic names and they come in and they kind they conquer the land uh, and they do that because they've got they're militarily superior because they're coming in as nomads off the Palestinian steppe with two wheeled horse chariots that the Egyptians never used. They didn't they knew they existed, but they never had to have any use for them since all the transportation was going up and down the Nile. So these people are coming in with two wheeled horse chariots and a new kind of bow and arrow, uh, a compound bow and arrow that it was so sturdy that you could fire easily from this racing chariot. And that seems to have been the thing that enabled them to conquer Egypt uh, for about a couple of centuries until long about 1500 uh, BC. In comes the great uh, pair of brothers, Amosis and Kamosis. Note the suffixes on their names, by the way, Moses. Amosis and Kamosis are brothers, uh, Egyptian brothers who come up from the south and they expel the Hyksos. They chase them out, they conquer them, and they do that by taking over the two-wheeled horse chariot and the compound bow and using it against them. And so they're out, and at that point, the Egyptians begin conquering Palestine. For the first time, they conquer the whole thing, and they turn it into an empire, what's known as the New Empire, uh, the third great Egyptian period after the Old Kingdom, the Middle Kingdom, and the New Kingdom. And so that's up and running uh, for a while there until by the time you get to the time of Akhenaten in 1350 BC, uh, the empire is a good, solid thing going. And he inherits it, but he is metaphysically and religiously inclined. He, he doesn't care about the empire. He doesn't care what's going on in Palestine. He's not interested in any of that. His whole thing was uh, a rebellion against uh, the Theban priesthood, whom he hated. There is evidence that Akhenaten began as a priest in Memphis that he might have been a priest of the god Ptah in Memphis uh, in the north. And so he was exposed to very, very old Egyptian cultural forms that he thought were authentic and that had gotten occluded by the popularity of the Theban priesthood and its primary god, Amun, whom he hated. And so by the time he became pharaoh, 
um, slowly uh, from Thebes, he, he built a temple called the Gempatun Temple, where he introduced this idea of the sun disk, the Atun disk, A-T-E-N. And the Atun disk is simply a sun disk um, that is a kind of monotheistic image uh, to which everyone else is subordinate. But the thing about it is that he despised the funerary cults, and he actually becomes, as far as I know, the first religious zealot in history. He actually sent men across the land with chisels uh, to scrape out the names of all the other gods. There's the funerary gods in particular, those connected with funerary cults such as Osiris and Isis and um, all, all of those gods, Ptah, and anathematized them. And he was only interested in establishing a religion of the sun, the world of the upper world. Um, so then what happened was that he left Thebes he took his wife, Nefertiti, and their children, the entire court, and they built the world's first intentional city, as far as I know, uh, around 1340 or something like that, uh, BC, uh, BC down uh, in between. It was exactly midway between Memphis and Thebes, and it was built on a spot that had been a little tiny fishing village. So they came in, and there was this interesting cleft in the mountains that they liked um, from out of whence the sun rose each morning. And so they built this huge uh, utopian city uh, with suburbs where it was only middle classes. There was no crime, no poverty. Um, all of that was eliminated. And so everyone is living there. And the temples don't have roofs because uh, Ignatan wants to make sure that people come in and they're worshiping the sun. And so the nobles who would come in from Palestine used to come in and they would hate it because they'd be out there waiting to see him in 120 degree heat in the summertime out there roasting without any shade. They absolutely hated it. And I don't think it was very popular uh, overall. Um, and so what happened then was that a plague apparently hit the city and uh, began wiping them out. They were losing money because they lost a huge amount of revenue from the empire because they lost connections with maintaining the empire. They lost that revenue. They lost revenue coming in, coming in from the Theban priesthood. So they lost that revenue. And they just started running out of money and then a plague hit. And that seems to have been the decisive thing that killed Ignatan and most of his family members. And Nefertiti was uh, alone left standing. Uh, and she tried to arrange a marriage uh, with one of the Hyksos princes, uh, Shupilulumis, I, I believe. And he was assassinated en route as they were bringing him south across Palestine. And he was killed. So that was it. They packed up and uh, they left. And uh, that city, Tel Alamarna, Akadatun, as it was called, uh, by by Ignatan was just buried by the desert sands and was regarded as a heresy. And all subsequent religious historians regarded Ignatan as an abomination, as one who uh, basically sinned against Mat. Mat is the Egyptian conception of truth, M-A-A-T. And he was the great sinner against Mat. And so they anathematized him and got rid of his name in most of their subsequent chronologies and records. So it took us a while to dig him up and, and piece all this together. But that's that's Ignatan in a nutshell. So if he began this concept uh, of a uh, one God kind of religion, then how? what made it survive? What, I mean, it should have ended with him then. Well, it did end with him, although Freud always suspected that Moses might have been one of the priests in, uh, in that cult and that the memory somehow survived with him. I don't think that's very likely, uh, but it is possible that it did survive in underground currents, that some people knew about it and it retained a cult following maybe. I, I think it actually did. And it survived as an underground memory. 
But whether it had any influence on, on the Hebrew conception of monotheism or not is debatable. I don't know. I mean, Moses comes from Egypt. The, he clearly has Moses is an Egyptian name. Uh, the prefix is missing, which is interesting because um, the prefix for the name Moses, Moses means child born of. And so the prefix always means a God, as in Ray Moses, Ramses. Uh, Ramses is uh, born of the, the sun god Ray. And so it's interesting that there's no prefix there for a specific God for Moses to have been born from. Uh, it's like it's part of the Hebrew iconoclasm to get rid of that. Uh, their God, Yahweh, is the invisible God. Um, it's a God who you can't even be depicted in pictorial form, even more so than uh, you could at least depict the Atun sun disk in pictorial form. But not so with Yahweh. It became this invisible God that was exported during the Exodus, which probably took place under Ramses II, about 1200 B.C., and in which the Exodus most likely did take place. Uh, but uh, I don't know. It's, it's a very debatable thing whether it, there's any direct relationship between the Akhenaten monotheism and that of the Hebrews. Maybe. I like that the idea that Freud had that probably just came from his brain. I'm not sure he had any source on it, but I like that idea that Akhenaten gave uh, the Emerald Tablet to Moses and that became the Ten Commandments. That's very interesting. Yeah, I, I've actually had not, had not heard that. It's in the book. I can't remember. It's called he, Freud wrote the book called Moses. It was called Moses and something. I can't remember what it's. Moses and monotheism is Freud's book. Yeah, I've read that. Yes, that one. I think I think it's just a sentence. It's, yeah, you can easily be skipped. But maybe so. Yeah, I might have missed it. Um, but I read it because I heard uh, I've been uh, very interested in the history of alchemy. So that's why I was I was reading the book only for that sentence. <laughs> um, so, um, but. You know, do people consider Moses to be more probably real than like Jesus, for instance? Like more, there's a there's a e proper evidence that he existed. Oh, I think so. I think we we know. I think we know that both Moses and Jesus were historical figures, just as we know that Ignatian was. Now, Abraham, on, on the other hand, maybe not, because Abraham, uh, it was found not too long ago that it looks like he was a uh, a folk hero that was favored by one of the uh, the Palestinian tribes. I've forgotten which one along about 700 BC. And then he was retroactively invented uh, to help explain the affiliation of Hebrew civilization to the Sumerians because uh, Hebrew civilization, Toynbee had this idea that civilizations are usually affiliated to other civilizations, which act as their parents in a certain way. And this is very much true for the Hebrews that they seem to have, uh, two, two civilizations, which are kind of their symbolic mother and father. Moses is the affiliation to the Egyptians. And Abraham seems to have been uh, a mythical figure invented to uh, show their affiliation to the Sumerians because Abraham leaves from the Sumerian city of Ur, the city that was sacred to the moon god Nanasin. And he leaves there supposedly around 1700 BC. That's at the time the Hyksos are invading Egypt, by the way. So that's an interesting date. Uh, and supposedly leaves there on his journey through Palestine, down into Egypt, up into Haran, all these areas that he goes. Um, but he may have been a mythical figure, but I don't think anybody would think that, uh, yeah, I mean, Moses is very clearly a, a historical figure. Jesus likely also. Um, it just depends. Some of these figures turn out to be mythical, some don't. I usually tend to think that they're not mythical more often than not because when somebody lives who makes a mark on history, they don't get, they don't get forgotten very easily. They just they're Lao Tzu is another example, I think, uh, of a figure who must certainly have been historical. I've read the Tao Te Ching and it's clearly a, there's a very clear cantankerous personality 
that comes through in the Tao Te Ching that I'm sure was a historical person that existed. Uh, a figure in Greece like Orpheus, for instance, on the other hand, no, probably not. He was probably purely mythological, invented to um, create a sort of theology for the Orphics. Uh, but it depends. Yeah, there's been some theories that Jesus was like a composite of several people that they combine them. But I guess with the with the Gnostic texts that they discover, I mean, it's, they're so much closer to Jesus' time that uh, just adds proof to it, I guess. Yeah, it's clearly that, that, that I mean, all the, the theologies differ. Obviously, the Gnostic theologies are quite a bit different from the official theologies that have become dogmatic by the Catholic Church. But um, I think we have a pretty good idea what, what he said, that he came into being to bring about this message of universal love and tolerance. I think that was his message. And I think that that's a tough message to bear, uh, you know, with all these antagonisms and hatreds that were going on in Jerusalem in those days at that time. Uh, with the Maccabean revolt and, and all the hatreds and zealotry and all the different offshoots and groups, everybody hating everyone else. Uh, and Christ appeared into the middle of all that and said, let's stop this. Why, why not love? Um, that was his message. And that's a tough message. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that sounds like a person, a personality has come in there. Jesus' message always, since I was young, I didn't think so much about it. Oh, yeah, that makes sense, or that's nothing special about that or something. But the older I get and the more I consider it, I realize that it's actually extremely hardcore, that message. I mean, it's like loving your enemies. It's like that takes, I mean, you have to be, you have to have balls to do that kind of stuff. I mean, I understand why he got killed. <laughs> that's tough. I'm, I'm, you know, yeah. I'm I'm 50 years old and I I still can't learn it. I mean I you know you, I, we have a natural ha a tendency maybe through uh, being tribal for so long to 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 love and hate. We we love these people and hate these people. I mean maybe it's ingrained in the human psyche. It's it's very difficult to 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 get over you know your animosities toward people that you disagree with or or who have hurt you or wounded you in your personal life or whatever. Forgiveness is like the hardest thing, and I agree it is. I, I think it is the hardest thing on this planet to learn. What do you, I mean, current events, um, the older I get, the less interested I am because I just feel like it's a lot of fear-mongering. And I've, I've discovered that the more I ignore it, the more positive I feel. It's not really like, uh, it's not ignorance is bliss kind of thing. It's just that, like, you, you can focus on the, there's a lot of good news and, uh, you know, you can read statistics in many different ways. I mean, there's more murder, but overall there's less murder and all that kind of thing. But uh, right now they're trying to, like, create this kind of, like, uh, uh, sequel to the Cold War, which it doesn't really... If, I mean, if this was, if this is what the Cold War was like, it, it maybe back then also was over-exaggerated in a sense, just to keep people afraid and... Yes, I'm not that thrilled with contemporary uh, events uh, much either. It seems like we're right back with, you know, with the Maccabeans and all these groups hating each other um, and nobody can seem to get along at all. Um, I've never seen it this bad. And I think a lot of it has to do with the Internet. Uh, the Internet fosters tribalism. Uh, it fosters, you know, uh, what Arjun Apadurai called diasporic public spheres, which are individuals who signify uh, with each other that they're with each other's tribe across vast global distances and it's diasporic, kind of like the Hebrew model of cultural affiliation that's not tied to a particular place because they lost their place. Uh, the temple was destroyed by the Romans. 
so they lost their place. And so they had to figure out a different way of maintaining their uh, affiliation to each other, their, their identity. And they did it diasporically. And I think the Internet also, in a certain way, revives that model of diasporic public spheres, individuals who are like minded and who are tribal and who signify each other. And then uh, that gives you the basis to uh, reject the other tribes, to dislike them, to get in and out, put quick comments in. Uh, shitty comments, you know, that don't have any consequences. You don't have to encounter these people and on the physical plane. Therefore, you can say whatever you want. They can't read your body language. And there's no consequences from any kind of critical abuse that you hurl at them whatsoever. So it's fostered this culture of what the German-Korean philosopher Byung-Chul Han calls the, the society of the shitstorm. That's what it is now. It's uh, everybody is just gets off on the schadenfreude of watching uh, some somebody under a scandal. Everyone's got to go through a scandal, and it's so much fun to click like and hate and like and hate uh, at the speed of light, and there's no chance for anybody's tempers to cool off. Uh, like with the Roseanne controversy, for instance, she lost her entire uh, show based on one stupid drunk tweet that she made one night, and within three hours, everyone was out of work and lost their jobs, which I think is ridiculous. I think that's totally crazy. That's ludicrous. But that's it. I mean, it's, it's the, the Internet encourages this public incivility. That's one of the downsides of it. Well, when you look at history, you know, you have like the medieval or the sometimes called dark ages, but they were not really that dark. But you have the Renaissance, you have all these different periods. Then you have modern times. Uh, but the modern is now in the past, in a sense. I mean, is, should it, could it be called modern still or... And what time are we in now? We, I guess you can't say that when you're in it. No, although I have tried to give it a name. I call it hypermodernity, although I haven't coined that term. I've just picked it up. Um, hypermodernity makes a lot of sense to me um, because, and there are a number of academics too who agree that postmodernism is dead, that it died and it ran around 1995, right when the internet was turned over from the National Science Foundation to the public sector and made public. And um, that coincides with neoliberal economics coming in right about the same time, free trade agreements and so forth, uh, NAFTA, all that kind of stuff coming in. And then uh, digital technologies, uh, anathematizing and replacing in analog technologies. The shopping mall now is a ghost relic, uh, clearly a relic from a former age, which was the age of postmodernity, where the shopping mall was the world interior of postmodernity. Not so now. The world interior is now the Internet. Uh, and it's very clear that social formations such as they exist at all, uh, and they can be very, they can be as evanescent as a flash mob, like the identitarians go in in Austria and they do these quick flash mob things where uh, they light a fire somewhere uh, and then signal to their buddies on the internet. And it lasts, the whole event lasts like 15 minutes and it's over. That's like the most evanescent social formation possible that's ever formed in history. So I see hypermodernity as something that clearly is a different thing now from postmodernity. What if you create a business where you, you create a uh, supermarket store that's like it was in the 40s, uh, like with the vinyl record, you know, like it becomes a work of art and you, it might be a good business. Yeah, there you go. Then That's McLuhan's retrieval, uh, right? So you've done, a, you made a lot of books and you make YouTubes. Yeah, so I guess you have a, a lot of things you could promote, but is there anything special that's recent or something that you want people to go to a certain website or something like that? Uh, not in particular. Uh, they might uh, go to my Patreon in case anybody was uh, wanted to make donations to this kind of thing that I do. I have lots of YouTube videos on the John David Ebert channel that people can watch and access. 
And I have a cultural discourse website. It's called culturaldiscourse.com, where I write essays and reviews on various aspects of culture. So they might take a look at those three things. Uh, so thanks a lot for taking the time to be on the podcast. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, thank you very much for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. Check out cultural-discourse.com. If you like this podcast, there are a lot of things you can do. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Write a nice review on iTunes or become a Patreon for a few bucks a month. You decide how much and for how long. As a Patreon, you'll get access to behind-the-scenes episodes before everyone else and a bunch more material. And we are starting to try and have some discussions over there as well go to patreon.com forward slash alchemist if you want to take part you can also if you want to really support the podcast order the special edition usb in wood with the dmt molecule engraved on it and this usb contains all 200 episodes and much much more content that only patrons have heard and some that none have heard Almost nine days of continuous listening. Click on the USB 200 link if you want it before it runs out. And it will run out because it is an extremely limited edition. Now let's rock out with the band Love Button and the track Ape Song. This song is taken from the album Eat More Fruit. To hear more of Love Button's music, go to Love button.com or facebook.com forward slash love button band next week we are looking at something called the eternal secret freedom is in the mind people are running and screaming and buildings are burning and bodies are everywhere and i can't help but feel that i'm a little bit responsible when i was a baby my mother would tell me that i would cause the death of my whole nation and by golly the old girl was right Surgically altered superhuman chimpanzee I felt so pretty so I set the monkey free 